Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and flip over to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. If, if you're visiting for the first time, I'm gonna, I mean, let me explain to you where we are in our, in our preaching series as a congregation. For the last few months, we've been going book by book through a section of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets, or simply the Twelve. These are, these are the last twelve books of the, uh, the Christian New Test- or Old Testament, and they, they originally were, were collected as just one book, several chapters in a single book, meant to explain God's perspective on what was happening in Israel's history at that time. Now, one of the things we've learned from our, from our series, from looking closely at each of these books, is that they really prepare us to appreciate the significance of Jesus. This is the last words from the Lord before the coming of Christ. They represent a a window into the arena in which Jesus was so necessary. And so they help us especially at Advent because this is a season in which we, with Christians all over the world, are trying to appreciate why we need to wait for Jesus, both why he was important in his first coming and why it's important to prepare for his second coming. And the prophets give us, a, give us really valuable insight into this question. So for the three Sundays beginning last week, today, and then next week, we're going back into the Minor Prophets to pull out those sections that, ref, that are picked up on by the gospel writers. When they were telling their stories, they, they knew that they were telling the next phase in a story that had a long, long history to it. And so they intentionally drew from past episodes, if you will, in that story and, and plugged them into their own. So we want to trace that out. We want to go back to, where, to their resources and then see them in context the way they're using them. So today, today what we're looking at is the way Luke and others pick up on a detail that's in Micah. The promise that the coming ruler, the one who would shepherd his people and give them peace, would come out of Bethlehem. We want to ask, why Bethlehem? Bethlehem's basic to Christmas, of course. I mean, it shows up in pictures, in lots of anachronistic uh, accounts of Jesus' birth that combine the wise men along with the shepherds, and they're all around this stable, and they're all in Bethlehem. It shows up in songs. It shows up in children's plays. And partly, it's so ubiquitous because it shows up in both gospel accounts. I don't know if you've ever recognized this, But Luke and Matthew tell the story of Jesus' birth very differently. Not because they disagreed with each other necessarily about what was in it, but because they thought different different details in that story were important enough to highlight. So Matthew gives us wise men, for instance, where Luke gives us shepherds and angels and the, the journey of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But one thing that they both give us, one thing that both of these authors thought was necessary for all people to know about Jesus' birth was that he had to be born in Bethlehem for some reason. Think about this further. In Luke, think about the implications of the way Luke presents Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 2, which we'll be looking at in more detail today, Luke describes a journey from Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary lived, to Bethlehem, where Jesus was to be born. Now, take, think about the implications of this. Luke is, a, is, is suggesting that this census that's declared by, the, by Caesar himself, that is to bring all people into their hometowns to be counted, Luke is suggesting that, that the main purpose of this empire-wide activity that's instituted by the most powerful man in the known world was simply to get Jesus from Nazareth so that he could be born in Bethlehem. 
The implication is that Luke believed Bethlehem was so important to the story that the entire empire and its activity revolve around it. So why? What, why was it so important for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? That's the question. I want to try to answer that for us this morning uh, with, with two different reasons. They're in your worship guide if you want to follow along. I think Bethlehem matters so much because of the kingdom of God, because Jesus' death is connected closely to the coming kingdom of God. And Bethlehem matters so much because of the glory of God, which we might see as the, as the whole point to the story itself. That's where we're headed. But first things first, let's read from Micah chapter 5 and then flip ahead and read from Luke chapter 2. If you want to find both of those, I'll ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's word as we read. We're going to read Micah chapter 5 beginning in verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, flip forward to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Bethlehem matters because of the kingdom of God. And what we have to see in these two passages is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because that's where David was from. And Jesus is seen to be the one who was promised, who would sit on the throne of David forever. The one who would give God's people peace. Now, in case you've never noticed it, this theme, this promise of a king who was coming to rule over Israel as the the the, the linchpin of Israel's hopes runs like a thread all through the Old Testament. You could really see the Old Testament itself as a story of a coming kingdom, of a struggle over who would rule God's people. You can see the, the struggles of God's people as, as traceable back to the fact that they had no trustworthy king. Ultimately, David, David's reign is represented to us as this time of of, of almost perfection, almost perfection. 
this high period in Israel's history where they were safe, where they had defeated their enemies, they had land that God had promised them, the temple was on its way to being built, a symbol of God's presence among them. Everything was what it should be, and yet there in the middle of this time, a promise comes to David from God saying that, that actually one is coming after him who'd be even greater, one who would never be thrown off of this kingdom's throne. You can see the rest of Israel's history from that point on as, as one after another a case study in the fact that that king had not come yet. Solomon, things go pretty well, but after him, things take a nosedive, so much so that, that the, the, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. We talked about this a lot when we were looking at the earlier prophets in the book of the Twelve. The kingdom splits into two, and then both of those kingdoms have kings who, who just let them down on, on every turn. The point is that the man who they were looking for hadn't come yet. I think you can see the, the, the prospect of one who would rule over God's people and lead them well as an anticipation that runs even beyond, even before David. If you think back to the story of the origins of sin, even, in the Garden of Eden, isn't it really about a man and a woman who were told to do a job on behalf of the high king who had created them, who ultimately replaced his authority for their own? Can't you see the Garden of Eden story as, as a coup d'etat? As a, as, as a civil war almost, and everything after that, all the tension between humans, all of the, the violence and, and even the civil war among Israel itself is a, is a testimony to the fact that this king, this ruler who was fit to wear the crown over God's people wasn't there yet. That's why the prophets begin to pick this up as a theme that they preach about over and over again. The prophets that we've looked at for the past fall give us several examples, but we've already read from a couple of them even this morning. Ezekiel prophesies of this coming one who would sit on David's throne forever. Isaiah talks about it multiple times. We think to, back to Zechariah and then ultimately to the, to the passage that we're looking at this morning. Micah gives us one of the most important descriptions of this coming one, the one who is going to restore all things for God's people. Micah describes it as one who would be born out of Bethlehem as one who, though coming from these humble beginnings, would be a ruler over all of Israel, as one whose, I love this phrase, whose coming forth is of old. The point is that this, there's a history to this. There's a history to the one who's coming. This is what you've been hearing about all of your life. This is what everyone has been waiting for. This is the one, in other words, who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This is the one who will be their peace. This is where Luke picks up his story. If you fast forward several hundred years, that's where Luke identifies the, the significance of Jesus. In chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary to, to tell her that she's going to give birth to a son who would deliver God's people from their sins, what she tells him is that God is going to give this one the throne of his father David, and he will rule over it forever. That's the gist of the promise. And the next thing you see happening in that storyline, is them headed to Bethlehem because, they, because, because God knew this is the place that he's going to come from. Why does Bethlehem matter? Because, because Jesus is connected to David, who is connected to Israel's hopes for a king who would give them peace. And that's the point. Now, I think it's clear enough that Bethlehem, that that's why Bethlehem matters in this storyline. It, it, it places Jesus in this long line of anticipation. What isn't clear what isn't nearly as clear as, as the hope for a Messiah who is to be an anointed one, their anointed king, 
What isn't as clear is, is why we should care about a king, right, today. This is one of the things I've just, I think I've struggled with all week in trying to figure out how to take us from this, this, these ancient set of prophecies that make for a really great story if you see the whole Bible as building to their fulfillment, but that, that are hard for us to latch on to because we don't always share, on the surface anyway, we don't share Israel's problems or their hopes. We don't live in a monarchy, and we don't particularly like the idea of monarchies, Right? We were all schooled in elementary school. When we think of kings, we think of King George III, right? And we think of taxation without representation and of folks dressed like Native Americans throwing tea off of ships into the, into the, the, the Massachusetts Bay. We think of oppression. We think of barriers to the pursuit of life and liberty and happiness. We don't like to think about kings. I think what we, gotta, what we have to understand, we have to cut through and that difference between their context and ours is that really Israel's hope for a king, if you boil it down to its essence, their hope for a king is a hope that's in all of us. It's something that's basic to what it is to be human even. One Old Testament scholar, I I, I like the way he summarized Israel's hope for a king. What they were desiring, what they ultimately wanted, was safety, security, and strength. A king represented for Israel the promise of safety, security, and strength. Drawing from the original stories where Israel asks God to give them a king like the other nations have, I think we can add to that. They wanted to matter. They wanted significance. They wanted an identity that put them on a par with those that they lived around. They wanted safety and security and strength and significance. Much of Israel's story is a cautionary tale. It's a story about looking for those things, for safety and security and strength and significance in all the wrong places. Israel's story is one that starts with a covenant where God promises that he will give them those things if they trust him, that he wants to be their God and calls them to be, the, to be his people. And yet time and again, what we see is we, if we trace out that story is them going after what their neighbors had going after the gods that seemed to make their neighbors more powerful than they were, going after the kind of security and strength that is promised in other sources. I think if, if, if we think about it, if we think about it carefully, it shouldn't be hard to see where the desire for a king, if, if that's really what it boils down to, it's in all of us. It's, it's, in, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. It doesn't show itself always in the same ways, but sometimes we look to our own ability, our own ingenuity, we look to our, you can see it in our own desire to control our lives, to know what our future is going to hold because we've planned for it adequately. We can see our desire for a king. We can, we, we can, we can analogize from Israel's experience to say that they wanted a king for the, the same reason that we want a fat retirement account, for the same reason that we want better jobs that give us more power and more prestige, for the t- same reason that, 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 that they wanted... Same kind of protection from the from the, the the threat of other people. We want we want strength and security, and we buy alarm systems to try to provide those to us. I mean, these are the same basic human drives that are in us. And if we're honest, our search for a king other than God ends up about like Israel's did. I think what, what our I think if we're honest with ourselves. What we see is that 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 we're all trying to be kings, but none of us is fit to wear the crown. That was the old Huey Long slogan. You guys know Huey Long, this 
uh, this, this Depression-era politician, populist from Louisiana. He, he, he had this massive radio audience, and he was always railing against people in Washington for ripping off the little man. And his, his slogan was, we are every man a king, but no one wears a crown. I think, I think that's actually a great way to capture our own experience if we tweak it just a bit. That, that we are every man a king, all trying to be master of our own lives, but none of us can wear the crown. I've used this example before, but I'm going to use it again, probably because I'm not really good at coming up at examples, so you guys are going to hear the same ones come back over and over. Lindsay and I, a few years ago, we had a dog. And uh, our experience as dog owners... <clears throat> as sweet as it was in some ways, was short-lived and very unfortunate. It was probably because we didn't impose our will on this dog. And so this dog didn't come to respect our authority. He didn't trust it. He thought he could do better on his own. So he was disobedient, and he acted out constantly. But what was obvious about him is that he also, even though he knew he couldn't trust our authority, he didn't trust his own authority. So he was fearful all the time. He saw threats everywhere. He was defensive towards other dogs and other humans. He was constantly going at them. He was anxious. He was manipulative. He was disobedient because he knew he was supposed to be in control, and he knew he wasn't in control. He knew he couldn't carry that weight. Does that sound familiar? Isn't it true that anytime we're defensive... It's because we see others as threats to the security that we're trying to hold on to, but know we can't secure for ourselves. Isn't every time we tell a lie, every time we try to manipulate someone, it's because we think we're responsible for establishing ourselves and that they present a potential threat or that if the truth were to come out, it would compromise our image of ourselves and the one that they hold of us. We're ultimately not a whole lot different than our dog was. We've put ourselves in the place of God, and that's left us fearful. It's left us defensive and insecure, and it's left us at the mercy of whatever comes our way, a future we can't see or control. The promise of Christmas is a promise to Israel as well as to us. It's a promise that a king has come who's fit to wear the crown. Now, this is a king who calls for absolute allegiance. There's no such thing as a kingdom we can latch hold to while maintaining our own autonomy. That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. This is a king who does call us to repent, to turn, to swap allegiances from ourselves or whatever else it was that held us and to exchange that for his authority. But remember back to, think back to Micah 5 and the promise of one who is coming from Bethlehem, the picture of this ruler who is to emerge. The picture of this ruler is the picture of a shepherd Submission to the authority of Christ is not the submission to a Hitler-like dictator who's going to use us for his own good. It's not the submission to the kinds of kings Israel had been struggling under for so long. It's the submission to, a kind of, to the king who, whose own identity is staked to his provision for us, who knows who he is and accomplishes his function based on how well he supplies our needs. That's the kind of king that we're called to the love of a shepherd who cares for us and leads us well. Bethlehem's about the kingdom of God. Bethlehem is a reminder to us to find our identity and our citizenship there because here a king reigns that we are joined to. So everything that's true of him is also true of us. 
the fact that he has conquered the power of death is also at the same time the fact that we have conquered the power of death through him. The fact that he has won over all his enemies and is making them all a footstool is at the same time the fact that we have conquered all of these enemies and are, are in him seeing them come to be nothing more than a footstool. That's the promise of Advent. It's beautiful. And that's why Bethlehem matters. There's a second piece to the puzzle, though. Bethlehem matters because of the kingdom of God. It's coming, and Jesus is the one who brings it. But it matters also because of the glory of God. The glory of God is this really churchy phrase that I, I know we throw around a lot, but it, it really does come up again and again all through the Old Testament and the New Testament as the goal towards which God is working, as really the whole point of creation being here, as a way to testify to him as a worthy and, tr- and, and, and good and loving authority over, over all that is. Bethlehem matters because of the glory of God. Here's what I mean. The primary description of Bethlehem in Micah, if you go back to Micah 5, the first thing that's said about Bethlehem is that they are too little to be among the clans of Judah. They're too little to matter. They don't even register among the clans. Do you see that? The point of Bethlehem, what sets it apart, is not just the rulers coming out of it, but that it in and of itself is nothing. Yes, Bethlehem is associated with David's line. We've already seen that. It, it does have this kingship that's associated with it, but it's associated with David and his humble roots, not with his power. The connection of Bethlehem to David is, is like the connection of Abraham Lincoln to his boyhood hometown that I got to visit as a kid. It's somewhere in, I don't even know where it is. I don't remember. It's in Indiana. I know that. It's in rural Indiana somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And you go to this national park that's Abraham Lincoln's boyhood home. And it's really, really humble. I mean, it's just a log cabin with logs that I'm sure he split himself, right? It's a log cabin. When the U.S. government decided to memorialize Abraham Lincoln and build what's now iconic, what shows up on our money, what we go to, we take trips to, to see it and take pictures of it, they didn't decide to build it in rural Indiana. Because even though his humble roots do kind of contribute to the aura around Lincoln, ultimately what he's known for is what he accomplished with his power in D.C., bringing a nation back together and what have you. So when they built the Lincoln Memorial, they didn't build it in Indiana. They built it in D.C., right around the corner from the White House where he lived, right around the corner from where he was shot and died as a martyr to National Union. If... The people of Israel had wanted to build a monument to David. They wouldn't have built it in Bethlehem. They would have built it in Jerusalem. That's what was most often called the city of David. This is the city that David built with his own hands and made the most powerful part of that known world. But when, when the coming king comes, he's going to come to Bethlehem, not to Jerusalem. Why? Have you ever noticed how consistently God acts to save in Scripture, in the story of the Bible? How consistently he acts to save in really unexpected ways? We could go to a lot of different examples of this. I'm just going to throw a few at you. Think back to the story of Abraham. Here's the guy that God is going to use to establish his people. to give them. He promises him people and he promises him land. And this was a guy who had neither. He had no land. He was a nomad, just traveling around living in tents. And he had no children. 
And he was married to a barren wife who was now way past the childbearing age. And that's the one that God is going to build a kingdom out of, giving him land and giving him children. Think ahead in the storyline. Think to the choice of Jacob, the younger brother, as the one through whom these promises would continue, right? Everything about their culture said it's the elder brother who inherits everything. That's the one God's going to want to build his kingdom through. And he chooses the younger brother instead. Why? Think ahead. Think to, to the God's deliverance of his people through Gideon in the book of Judges. You remember the story of Gideon? He's raised up this army to attack. I mean, I'm blanking now even on, the, on which one of their enemies it was he was going to attack. It was one of those, one of those Philistines or what have you. And, and Gideon raises up this massive army for him, for Israel's size. It was a significant army. And through this elaborate process of weeding it out, God has him trim it down. Remember, this is where they're drinking the water. He tells them, go get a drink of water. And if they, if they drink with their hands or versus drink in the, in the brook directly, that's how you'll know who you're going to keep on your army. And in the end, it, it whittles it down to almost nothing, just a laughable size. Why would God do that? Think of David. David was not just from this remote town from Bethlehem. Not only was he from a a, a totally unglamorous line of work as a shepherd, but he was the youngest and least significant of a whole bunch of brothers. So when the prophet Samuel is told to go to Jesse's house to find the king, the next king of Israel, obviously he starts with the biggest and the brightest of the bunch, and he works by process of elimination through them. And then it's it's David, the youngest and least significant, least imposing figure of them all. That's the one that's going to be Israel's greatest king. Why? When it came time for David's successor to come, for the word to become flesh, he didn't choose to come in power with all the trappings of human glory. He chose to come in the humble birthplace of his father David for the same reason that God chose David and not David's brothers for the same reason that God delivered Gideon not through an army of thousands but an army of hundreds for the same reason that he promised to build his kingdom out of a man who couldn't have children and who had no land because these things point to the fact that if God's kingdom is to come and if it's to stand it will do so only because of the God who makes it happen All of these details, systematically, throughout the Bible's storyline, point to the fact that God alone is responsible for the kingdom he's promised would come. This is more than an ironic twist in the the storyline. It is that. It is a really great storytelling technique, but it's so much more than that. It's also a reminder that when God acts to save, he does it in a way that proves it's by his power. That's why Jesus, if if we start in Bethlehem, this, this town too small to be numbered among the clans of Judah and carry the story, story forward. That's why Jesus was born in poverty. That's why he lived without a home. It's why he marched without an army and why he was crowned not with gold but with thorns. It's why he triumphed through the ultimate act of shame. When God acts to save, he turns the expectations of this world on their head. He doesn't conform himself to the categories of human greatness and human power. He leaves to Caesar all the trappings of royalty, and he takes to himself a manger as his bed. Why? Because this proves that the stability of God's kingdom is due to him and to him alone. Now, Bethlehem matters for the glory of God, because in being born there, we're told that God's kingdom is God's, 
and not one that's built by us. And here is why that's both an encouragement and a challenge to us. Here's why that's both an encouragement to us and a challenge for us. If the significance of Bethlehem for the coming kingdom is the reminder that we really do need a king and want one, the significance of Bethlehem and its connection to the glory of God helps us to see what it's like to be citizens of the kingdom that's coming. And this citizenship and its terms are meant to point to God's glory as well. If the kingdom and the way that it comes is meant to highlight God's glory, then it makes sense that what it looks like to participate in that kingdom, for us to be citizens of it, must point to that glory too. That's an encouragement and a challenge. Let me be more specific. It's an encouragement because we're reminded that God builds his kingdom not from the powerful and not from the worthy, but from those who have nothing to offer but faith in him. Remember this picture. I'm going to take you back now. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but flip back not to Micah but to Zephaniah in our study. At the end of Zephaniah, in chapter 3, the very last section of Zephaniah 3, the prophet is painting this picture for us of what God's kingdom will look like when it comes, of the, of the peace that he's promised to bring to his people. Notice at the end of chapter 3, though, remember, thinking back to our study, who it is that participates in this kingdom. Who are the citizens going to be? Those who are listed out include the lame, include the outcasts, those who had no home those who were weak, those who were weighed down by shame. And what he promises at the end of Zephaniah 3 is that he's going to turn their shame into praise. He's going to make them famous in the earth. He's going to make the lame and the outcast and the weak famous in the earth. Why? Because when they represent the strength of God's kingdom, they point all who see it to the fact that what makes them strong is not their own abilities, but the God who has welcomed them in. Think about it this way. Let me give you an analogy for this. The wisdom of the world says the opposite, right? When, let's, take a, let's take a college. When an, when an elite college goes out looking for its students, they select the most promising that they can find. They use tests, arbitrary tests, of course, but they use tests. They use essays. They use all these various admissions protocols, and their goal is to call from the applicants the best and the brightest right? But looking at an elite college, you might say that, of course, they're elite. They've got the best students. They're made up of those who in themselves have all the best skills. They bring the most to the table. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. If God had built his kingdom, if he was building it now on the powerful and the pure, you might say that, of course, God's kingdom is glorious, Look at all these great people that he's got in it, right? They're all so pure. They're so free from sin. They're so powerful and impervious to all the threats around them. What king wouldn't look good as the ruler over such people? But in fact, God's kingdom is made all the more glorious because it's, it is made up of those who have nothing and they know it. In God's kingdom, Christ and Christ alone is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He and his purity is his kingdom's only light. He and his death-defying power is its only peace. It is not based on the power of an army that he's made out of the strong among them. It is not based on, its purity is not based on the righteousness of those who find a home there. It's based only on that which Christ has done. He doesn't need the trappings of human royalty to look secure 
he therefore comes to shepherds and announces his coming, not to the dignitaries of the land. He tells the shepherds that he's come. He's born in Bethlehem, not in Rome or even in Jerusalem. And that's encouraging to us because it reminds us that he delights to strengthen the weak and to wrap his righteousness around those who don't have any righteousness of their own. The beauty, the essence of the gospel is a great exchange where Christ gives to us what we couldn't muster up on our own, where through his work we take advantage of everything that he has accomplished because we can't accomplish what's necessary. The message of Advent and and of the coming of Christ is of a king who would come to provide what we can't have on our own. That's an encouragement to us, for sure. But it's also a challenge. It's a challenge to us because this picture of kingdom citizenship, one that sort of turns the world's expectations on its heads, one that makes the king everything and the citizens nothing but what they are in the king. That's a tough, that one's tough to live with because I think by default what we want is to deserve our place, right? We want to deserve our place in the kingdom. If you get accepted into an elite college, you're proud of it, not just because the college is elite, but because you made the cut, right? It's a challenge to us because following a king who's born in Bethlehem has got to reflect this counterintuitive, God-glorifying priority of the kingdom, so the question for us is, do you find yourself still relating to God as if you had to perform your way into his good graces? As if he looks at you and is either pleased or displeased based on what you do? If you do think about him that way, you don't understand the point of Christ coming to Bethlehem, the most small of all cities, of so, so, least, so, so little, so insignificant that it wasn't even numbered among the clans of Judah. Now, it's tough to see, I think, whether or, not we true, or whether or not we relate to God as one whose favor we've got to earn through our performance. I think it's a lot easier, at least in my own life. I've noticed it's much easier for me to, to know that I relate to God that way by the way that I, I relate to other people. I can see it better in the way that I relate to other people. So here's some more questions for you. What we're asking about is, does, does your citizenship in the kingdom of God reflect this priority on God's glory, the same kind of reversal of expectations that is true in Jesus coming to Bethlehem and not Jerusalem. Do you need others to see you as strong? Do you need others to see you as righteous? Do you need others to see you as wise? So we we're a stone's throw from a university campus, and that's an easy, that's an easy environment to, to pick on for a little closer look. Obviously, the, 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 the gospel as we preach it has always been foolishness, but it seems like in our culture it's especially foolish in, in places of higher learning, places where science is valued, where, where different theories that have, that have developed over time begin to, to, begin to color what seems plausible and the gospel doesn't fit. Do you find yourself, those of you who are associated with that culture, do you find yourself needing to, to, to either be quiet about the things that you believe or to reframe them or shape them in a way that you think is going to make more sense or be more palatable to those that you work with, those you're in class with or in lab with? I know that I certainly feel guilty of that time and again in my time in grad school. But the calling to citizenship in this kingdom is a calling to be fools, to embrace our identity as fools, because that's what the gospel always will look like. I mean, this is where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? 
The gospel is always foolishness to those who think that it's got to come through their own work or their own wisdom, that they need to think themselves there. The gospel is specifically designed to be foolishness to the wise because it's not a system that anyone would have designed on their own. The question is, can you live with that? Are you willing to be fools for Christ's sake? Does your life, does your view of yourself, does the view of you that you want others to have reflect the priorities of God's kingdom? A priority that is all about highlighting the one who delivers to us what we can't have on our own. An Advent-centered life is one that points forward to the value of what's coming. It's one that that upends the expectations of human desire and glory. It says that those things aren't true, but something that is true is coming, and that is what I organize my life around, no matter its appearance to other people. That's a life that points to the satisfying and joy-giving glory of God as the whole point of our existence. And that's a life that is consistent with the fact that our king came not to Jerusalem or Rome, but to Bethlehem. Father, help us. We so long to be wise in the eyes of the world.